Welcome to the Review Be Named podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show tonight, we have Chris. Yo. And Sam. I am, as always, Sam. I like to do it the lyrical way that you like to do it, Jordan. I do. I'm, I'm whimsical. That's, that's just how I am. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like riding a swing. I listen to you. Yeah, uh, I, I'll that's soothe you swing. to sleep with my dulcet tones. <laughs> <laughs> um, tonight on the show, we're going to do the news roundup, uh, talk about some of the biggest stories in, in this last week, and one story in particular. Um, we're going to talk about television uh we're going to talk about the walking dead's finale and Mad Men's premiere and we are going to return to the review name movie club and talk about out of sight so stick with us throughout the hour and probably longer because i imagine this will be a long show and uh we'll have some fun so we're going to start things off with the news roundup chris i want to kick over to you first um and you can start us off okay so my news story revolves around a comic story uh that happened earlier in the week where uh, Apple announced that they weren't going to be uh, offering the 12th issue of Brian K. Vaughn's creator-owned series Saga through their uh, apps for their tablet devices, both for uh, through their and for their apps for iPad and iPhone. Uh, the reason for this is there's a scene in the issue with a um, a pretty uh, graphic depiction of gay sex. Uh, and it's not so much the sex because Saga is a book that has had numerous, very, very graphic depictions of sex. So this is a move very targeted at a certain kind of act. And really it's raised a lot of, and I think very merited, uh, displeasure in the comics community and in the entertainment community in general, just because no one likes censorship, especially censorship that's this targeted, um, so Brian K. Vaughn released a statement. He's not happy about it. Uh, and, um, the, the, you can still download the issue. If you have, um, a Comixology account, you just have to download through the website and then sync your, your tablet device to that. But Apple is not going to be offering it for download through the mobile apps themselves. This is like incredibly upsetting to me yes um me too let's, let's start there yeah uh, especially because like it's 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 just very very clear bigotry in a way like saga has had lots of graphic sex like you said it's and it's also had lots of like weird graphic sex too in yeah terms of, like, like people with tv heads having sex there was a there was an issue where they went to an orgy planet and no one really had any kind yeah, of problem like, that at, at on that orgy planet was like a little girl who had been used for sex. Yeah. Like yeah. there's it, it's a book with graphic sexual content. Um yeah. and apparently Apple only has problem with that graphic sexual content when it is uh homosexual and not heterosexual even if heter by heterosexual you mean pedophilia or television head people. Yeah. Um it, it's it it's just is so transparent for what it is because I mean the it it's two images, um, in a book that has just printed much more, if you want to call it, if like graphic sex. They they show they showed a um a giant um with um warts all over his scrotum like trying to like crush some main characters with his nice. giant diseased junk it was like there there is this is a very graphic book it's funny and because like at the 12th <laughs> issue that 
for them to finally start having a problem with this, you have to, it, it's just, it's, it's obvious what it is. And it's, I, I don't think you could ever call what Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples are doing in that book. Um, gratuitous. I don't think anything in there is meant to shock or to, to be scandalous. I, I think everything they do is part of the aesthetic for the story they're trying to tell. It's part of the veneer of the world they've created. It's it's very much in the fabric of the story. Yeah, I was I was and, gonna say it's it's yeah. funny because now that we're talking about it, I realize how much graphic sex is in that book. But I never think about Saga as like a particularly like adult or graphic book. You know, yeah. like it's that's like it's there and it's part of the story that's being told. But it's never like oh, this is the book I read for like all the graphic sex scenes and all the weird sex stuff that's going on in it. It's like it's a it's a fantasy book that's telling a really actually sweet story about like new being a new parent basically yeah. <laughs> that just also happens to have other content in it uh, i mean if like if I don't, I don't know if this is a great comparison but um it it the the sex and saga is not as like to compare with something like game of thrones where it's like whenever there's a sex scene in game of thrones it like really stands out to me well, Game of Thrones is like it's it's uh, like it's apparent that what they're yeah. doing is like because we're on HBO and we do stuff with boobs in it, we're gonna have some boobs in this episode. Yeah. Um, and like oftentimes it is ancillary to the story to the point where it's just like they haven't shown boobs in a while and they want to figure out a way to get boobs in here. Right. Um, I've never once felt that way about Saga. Exactly. That's the point I'm trying to make. Everything seems to flow much more organically in Saga. So, um, I you know it's. The people who want the comic are still going to get the comic. Like if you buy it in print, you're not going to have a problem. Uh, if you um, are a digital reader, there are ways around Apple's ban. And actually, this is the second book Apple has done this with. They've also, I think, refused to carry another series from Image called Sex, uh, written by Joe Casey. But I that I think was um, not as targeted a banning as this one well but it's it's one thing it's, if you're gonna say uh we will not carry any graphic titles on this yeah. app um i think it's censorship that i wouldn't approve of and i wouldn't use the app and i don't use the app um but i think it's one thing to say we are not going to carry uh any any book that has you know graphic content of any sort in it or yes. like even just graphic sexual content Sure. I, think, I think that's silly censorship. I would disagree with it, but that's one thing. It's another thing to say we have no problem with graphic sex as long as it's heterosexual. Yeah, um, and that's what this is essentially saying. Right. And, and we, is, we should again reiterate that this is not comicsology's practice. This is Apple. This is Apple down the line. Yes, uh, this is this is an Apple decision, um, and it's it's very yeah. strange. Uh, and, and actually, Comixology should be commended for immediately following Apple's announcement. They released their own statement telling you how you can get the the book on your iPad or iPhone. So good for them. Yeah, uh, definitely good for them. Um, sorry, we're having technical difficulties. It looks like we've briefly lost Sam. I'm going to try to get him back in here. Okay. Um, but it's it's just – it's shocking to me that, that Apple would do something so brazenly bigoted. Yeah. Uh, I mean like it's just – I guess I don't know much about Apple's social policies as, as a rule because I don't really follow it um, until I hear that they're doing something shocking. But this is shocking. And I'm yeah, sorry. and the, the thing that's that's interesting to me is that Saga cannot be the most um, graphic book that they host on the Comixology apps. I'm wondering if this is because of Saga's high profiles, because uh, for the past couple of days, I've, uh, they, they just released comic sales for 
um, the past few months. And Saga actually sells really, really well for a book that's not from the big two. So I'm wondering if maybe um, Apple is starting to kind of notice what kind of content is being pushed through these apps. And was Saga came on its radar because it is, again, a higher selling book. And maybe I, I hope this is not indicative of we're going to start seeing more books um, blocked through Apple. Well, I think what what's going to happen if they start blocking more books is they're going to lose people. I mean, yeah, I hope they do. There's there's no like if I use that app, uh, I would stop using that app because of this. Like, well, I don't I don't know that that's the way to go about it because it's I mean, Apple hosts the app, but it's like it is it is a comicsology platform like comicsology is the one getting the money. It's not Apple. Well, OK, that that makes it more complicated again, because I don't use I don't use the app. I, I'm not too familiar yeah. with the way that it works. Yeah. Um, I'd say that maybe the way to go about it would be to buy if you are a subscriber, if you don't like Apple's policy, maybe because it, it's the same. The, the comics all end up in the same place. But if you want to maybe avoid um, any sort of reward for Apple or support of them right now, maybe just buy them on the Comixology site and then just sync them to your app that way. So. I don't know if that will register or do anything, but it's. I don't it's know something. if you if you do know Chris, but is there like a a place that people uh, listeners of the podcast can write to Apple to criticize this policy and to uh, tell them that they think it should be changed? Um, no, I don't know offhand. Okay, well, I but, imagine there is a place. I yeah. do not know where the best place to write Apple and say you're pissed off about this would be, but you should do that if you're pissed off about it, and you should be pissed off about it. Um, yeah. I, I will try to find a place that uh you know a, an email address at which complaints like this sh- should be sent and if so i will tweet it from the review name twitter so that'll be a thing um follow us on twitter i'll tell you where you can go yell at apple for being bigots um which is a good idea because if enough people yell at them maybe they will change their policy yeah that would be nice um all right well i guess we can move on from that to sadly news that is not uh any any brighter um, I think the biggest thing that happened in pop culture this week, and really the biggest thing uh, that will happen in pop culture for a while, I would say, was uh, the death of Roger Ebert. Yes. Um, this is something – the day before he passed, he posted something uh, to his website talking about how he was taking a leave of presence. Um, his cancer that he'd been fighting for the last several years had returned. And he was going to have to slow down for the first time pretty much in his entire career. Uh, but he, you know, it was a very upbeat, really beautiful uh, piece that he put out saying, I'm going to slow down, but I'm going to use this to write about my illness, to write about my life and the things that I want to write about and to cover the movies that I really want to cover. Um, as opposed to being on the beat the way he had been and just writing about, you know, six movies a week. Uh, and it was it was a really like I said beautiful piece and it was something that I was I I, I was really excited about and and really admired to, to see him say you know like the illness is coming back uh, I'm going to be in treatment again but I'm not going to stop and that's something that I'd respect I've respected so much about Roger Ebert for so long is he was really sick he lost his jaw he lost his ability to speak and he never stopped uh, and in fact really he became a bigger. Uh, 
he became uh, sorry um sam is having troubles again he became a, a bigger presence online and started blogging about things other than just movies and talking about you know whether video games were art and his own life and his own illness and all of that in the last several years and it like he'd really built a relationship and um it was really really uh depressing to have that piece come out and be really excited about it and then to lose him the next day um I think I've said this a few times in conversation with friends about it, but if you'd told me two weeks ago, or if you'd asked me two weeks ago how I'd react to Roger Ebert dying, I uh, I would not have expected the reaction to be as as uh, serious as it ended up being. Um, I was really upset um, when it happened, and um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about Roger and thinking about the effect he had on my life and reading a lot of his criticism again uh over the last few days um chris do you have uh any sort of deep connection to ebert uh certainly not in the way that i think you did um i i i always liked knowing that ebert's presence was out there i i never really followed him i think as closely as you did but i i would from time to time and uh it was always a voice that i think was one undoubtedly one of the most prolific in the film review communities, but also just, I think, um, it, it, he's just a comforting presence to know he's out there. There's just something about like knowing what Roger Ebert thinks about a movie. That's just kind of like, is sort of like a universal sort of conversation. Cause I think his fans were just that numerous. I mean, I've read dozens of, uh, obituaries and remembrances, uh, over the days since his death, and pretty much all of them that were written by film critics at one point included the phrase, I wouldn't have this job right now if it wasn't for Roger Ebert. Yeah. Um, I don't have a job in film criticism, but I'll tell you right now, I would not be doing this podcast right now. I would not have a website called Review to be Named, and I wouldn't be writing about film if it wasn't for Roger Ebert. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I, I gave him enough credit often enough, um, but... When I was a kid, like the the only critic that was run in my newspaper was Roger Ebert. Like the yeah. the only film criticism I had was Roger Ebert. You know, I watched I watched at the movies when I was a kid. Uh, I sort of fell off after uh, Siskel had died because I wasn't as big a fan of uh, Richard Roper. But really, like the idea of film criticism as a thing that people did came to me from Roger Ebert. So. Basically, I, I wanted to give a little uh, bit of the show over to the idea that film criticism lost a titan. Um, really, I mean, the most important film critic of all time, probably. That I, I you can argue about, you know, best, and you can argue about intellectual merits. Um, you know, I've heard, you know, people. If you're talking about, first of all, I should say, people have mentioned him often in the same sentence as Pauline Kael and Andrew Sarris and the like. And if you're yeah. mentioned in the same sentence as those people, you're doing pretty well. But I think even for people who don't read film criticism as a practice and who are not into the intellectualizing of film the way that I am and the way that a lot of people who loved Roger were, um, I think that he is sort of the face of film criticism. I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair claim. And I didn't, you know, I didn't always agree with him. He's he definitely was not my number one critic in terms of like he is where I go for what I think about movies if, you know, if I'm torn or, you know, if I'm reading yeah. a review before I see a movie, he was not my best barometer for if I would like it. 
Um, that's certainly the case. But I think you always had to justify any cinematic opinion of your own against his. Like reading reading his criticism, I would always go, okay, like so. No, I don't I, I don't think the same way about the movie that he does. But why? Um, and he always, in that way, at least made me think more about the movie and try to better myself, uh, which is what great film criticism is all about, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think great film criticism is about uh, the idea of thinking more about movies and trying to, uh, you know, improve the way that you think about them and and improve your your outlook on cinema in general. And I think he was great at that. He was also just such a prolific writer. I mean, like I said, he was often writing about six movies a week uh, for decades. Yeah, it's I mean, I I. Posted something on the website earlier today. I am uh, now's now's as good a time as I need to plug it, I guess, um, because actually, the reason that I started doing it was um, in part as a response to Roger's death and the feelings that I've had about it. Um, one of the things that uh, I posted. Or, so I'm sorry, I'm getting Sam back in here. Um, okay. One yeah. of the things that I uh, posted to the site today was. Uh, a new form of film criticism that I'm going to be doing, which is like small paragraph style reviews of whatever I'm watching, just because it's been hard for me to write reviews since I've been in law school. And just writing those words saying like, well, I haven't had a lot of time to do a lot of movie reviews lately because of this, this, and this. It's like, it's such a paltry excuse, especially in the face of someone who was as prolific as he was. <laughs> yeah. Do we have Sam back with us? I don't know. He has. Yes, said- I, I think I'm back. Excellent. Excellent. There we go. Um, good, because we were about to move on, and I, I know you had some things to say about uh, Roger Ebert and his death, so I wanted to vamp for a minute and, and talk about the effect he's had on me so that we can give you a chance to do the same. Yeah, well, stupid internet's been stupid for me, but luckily Ash let me her computer. Excellent. Well, she thank saved you, me. Um Friend of the show, Ashley. Friend of the show. Um, basically just my reaction to Roger Ebert is I was, you know, for how prolific he was and, you know, the decades that he wrote film criticism, I was particularly impressed with what he did in kind of the last few years of his life because he did like a lot of really good writing and he did a lot. He he wrote a, a lot about politics. He wrote about video games, even though I still think he was wrong about video games, not being able to be art. In fact, I disagreed with him all the time on stuff. Um, Oh yeah, but you know that's how it is with critics. And if he's writing like a million movie reviews a week, that's going to happen. But for the most part, you know, I would I would read him usually, usually after seeing a movie, uh, just to kind of see what his take was. And you know, I guess I guess probably like most people around our age, our first uh, introduction to him was through. Siskel and Ebert, and then Ebert and Roper. Um, I'm not sure if when I first started watching him, he was with Roper yet. I guess Gene Siskel died late the, in the 90s. Siskel era, and I, as I, I said, actually, when we lost you, I actually sort of fell off on watching the show when Roper was around because I didn't like Roper as much. I think I, I actually think I might have started watching the show when they were doing rotating guests, mm-hmm. trying, <laughs> trying to figure out a new fill-in for uh, Siskel. And I definitely remember watching the show and not liking Roper so much. Uh. I mean, I don't know. I haven't read a lot of Richard Roper's criticism um, because he was, like I said, my my hometown newspaper when I was a kid 
ran Ebert reviews, and those are the only reviews they ran. Um, so I, I and in the years since, I've read a lot. I, I read a lot more film criticism now. I've never actually uh, read a lot of Richard Roper's for whatever reason, possibly because of my youthful bias against him. But maybe he's a really good film critic, um, and I've I've shut him out. But yeah, I didn't like Roper when I was a kid, um, and so I've never really sought him out. Yeah, well, but it is a great loss in the film community for yes, sure. Absolutely. Um, so rest in peace, Roger Ebert. You will be missed. Uh, and I guess. And we know. Go ahead. He's a he's a big listener of the podcast, so he's a friend of the podcast. Yeah, clearly. friend of the show, definitely. He loved the podcast. Um, and yeah, he'll be, he'll be missed. And like I, I said it before, I think every film critic I've read, like I said, has, that I've read anything on has said it, but Review Your Name probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Roger Ebert, um, honestly, because that's like where the idea of film criticism even entered my head. So I owe him a lot, and I will miss him. Um, and with that, we can move on, close down the news roundup, and talk about – well. Honestly, the podcast isn't going to get lighter for a while, Chris, because you want to talk about The Walking Dead, which is fairly bleak. So let's let's talk about the finale of The Walking Dead. Uh, sure. I know we're a little bit dated on this. And um, actually, this conversation was supposed to include Alex, who is the only other person uh, who does this podcast, who still watches the show. Yeah, so we can talk I'm, about that as part of the conversation. Don't worry. OK, so I'm going to do my best to carry on his absence. And hopefully if you guys have questions, please jump in and interject, because I don't really want to just be me this be me waxing nostalgic about the show and where i think it's going and how it's changed from previous seasons um let me preface this by saying that um i don't actually like the walking dead comics i read them up to a certain point i think around the prison arc was where about about where i stopped reading um i I, i'm just not a huge fan of robert kirkman i don't really uh his writing has never really connected with me, so it just wasn't for me. So I, I stopped reading the comics, but I started watching the show um, and I had been watching ever since it began airing on AMC. Um, I liked the first season. I really didn't like the second season at all, um, but I decided to give third season a chance, mostly because um, with a new showrunner, there's always a chance for a change of direction. Usually that's not a good thing, but in this case, um, the new showrunner, Glenn, Glenn Mazzara really turned the show around. It really started heading in a direction that I felt like was more pop was a much more positive direction for the show. Uh, week to week, the episodes were more engaging. The characters were less frustrating and the show started to do some more interesting things than it had been doing in previous seasons. I'm not going to say it fixed all the problems because it certainly didn't, but the show was definitely much more fun to watch this third season, even though it was still as bleak as always, but um, it was definitely a better show than it had been in previous seasons. And I think um, although I did have my problems with the finale, it stayed consistently higher quality throughout this run of episodes. So I'm kind of sad to see that, um, the there's going to be yet another turnover in showrunner. But um, as I said, it, it, it caught me again. So I'm, I'm back on board and I am cautiously, cautiously optimistic about uh, looking forward to next season. As, as you well know, I 
continuously um, have the assumption that you're pretending The Walking Dead got good to try to trick me into watching it, <laughs> and it's still as awful as it as it was during the second season. Yeah. I uh, I actually don't think that I finished season two. Um, I think I only watched the first half. The first half of season two was the one that ended with uh, the little girl, right? Yes, yeah, that was the... Yeah, the that's movie. where I stopped also. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When that finale aired, and I was like, wow, so I've wasted like eight straight episodes on something I never cared about going exactly the way that I knew it was going to go. Um, and that's when I was like, you know what? I uh, I don't have a whole lot of free time, and I'd rather spend it on something that is anywhere better than this. So I dropped The Walking Dead then. I don't regret the decision. Um, even though you're trying to make me, I think it's an elaborate gag. <laughs> what were the things that you liked about season three? Um, you, you've touched on a few of them. What were the, what were maybe in a little more depth the things that you liked about season three um, that had changed since season two? Well, what really caught my attention is the um, the season three premiere episode was a great hour of television. It was um, a complete sort of turnaround and did things that were much more ambitious than I thought the show's uh, creators or cast were capable of. You had a wonderful uh, cold opening to the series that illustrated a jump in time and completely without any dialogue had kind of shown you just how much these characters had changed in the interim and was just a very effective uh, sequence of television and immediately kind of made me sit up and take notice and say, okay, maybe things are going to be different this time around and did in fact very much set a tone for the rest of the season going forward, that the show was going to be a little bit smarter. Everybody was going to be a little like the, the characters were going to be written as being more capable as a little bit more well-rounded. And the show itself was maybe going to start taking some chances and not just being as completely predictable and pointless as maybe it had been in past seasons. Um, what I liked about this season a lot were some of the character arcs that have developed, particularly that of Carl, who I think was one of the most hated characters since the inception of the show. This being uh, Rick's younger son, who um, before season three, his sole role on the show was just to become zombie bait or to get shot whenever they needed some dramatic tension wrung out of a scene that really wasn't doing much. Um, Carl really grew a lot over the season in a way that has made him one of the most fascinating characters on the show. Uh, the, his injury and also the, um, the harsh realities of the world that surrounds him has kind of forced Carl to grow up way, way before his time. So a lot of the conversations that he'll have with his dad are sort of the conversations that you would expect to have, like, a, a 20 something year old to be having with their father. But like, then he'll say something that you will remind you that he's still a little boy. And it's it's a very it's a very tough line that this actor's had to walk. And I think he's done it very, very well. And he's done a few things um, this season that have kind of put him on track as one of the darker characters in the series and sort of has become a focal point for Rick in trying to figure out how he's going to lead this people. And on the one hand, he has a son who is becoming much more capable, much stronger and probably would be able to survive in the zombie world if Rick were to die. But on the other hand, also his son is maybe becoming this sort of inhuman kind of killing machine. So I think it's a really cool tension that they've been developing with that character. And that's one of the things that I think they did really, really well this season. Do we want him to become a like a killing machine robot? Well, I think that's one of the questions that they're starting to get you to ask towards the end of the season is – Yes, he's becoming much more capable, and yes, he is a far more interesting character now, but maybe he's the litmus test for the rest of the group, and 
is he going too far? But at the same time, I think they did some really good. Uh, they, they it's it's not just that he's um, becoming detached and cold to the world. It's his uh, reasoning behind why he does some of the things he does and why he makes some of the hard choices he does is lessons he's learned from specific instances and specific events that have happened to the group. And you could kind of take these things in two different ways. So for instance, there was um, a, a a prisoner who they had kind of, like this season involved him taking over a prison. And there was one prisoner who, because they distrusted him, because they thought that he was going to try and harm them in their sleep, they refused to give him the benefit of the doubt. Rick kind of kicked him out of the prison and left him to die. So that guy later comes back and lets a bunch of zombies into the prison and people die. And it's 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 just a horror show. And you could kind of take two different tracks from that. Like one, maybe if they had given this guy the benefit of the doubt, maybe if they had been nice to this guy, maybe if they had included him and given him the safety of the prison, this wouldn't have happened. Or if they had killed this guy when they had the chance, if they had just done away with him off right outright, it never would have happened either. So I think those are some of the slightly more interesting questions the show is asking this time around. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I did not like about the show that it sounds like might might have been fixed is uh, the lack of depth of the characters, and especially Carl. Uh, as we talked about, you know, like Carl was always the character that was like great, like Carl's doing something, and I have to pay attention to that for a while. Yeah, um, and I think one of the things the show uh, could have done with Carl, and it sounds like maybe they are now, is like the the idea of what toll this uh, living in this world would take on a child who's not fully formed as a person yet. Like, it's one thing to ask what toll this would take on anyone. You know, like obviously living in the zombie apocalypse is going to change the life of anyone, but a, a child whose moral compass is still not completely developed is going to have a different reaction to that, and it's going to change them in different ways. And that's something I never saw the show do with Carl, but it sounds like maybe they are now. Although now that Glenn Mazzara is leaving, maybe they're not. Yeah, I hope they continue on this road because, again, Carl has had to do some really, really terrible things this season and um, has become really one of my favorite characters to watch on the show. And also other characters have kind of grown grown on their watch. This season saw the return of uh, Merle to the series, uh, who is uh, was a character who was also just very much hated in season one because he was just so one dimensional and so outrageous. But uh, Michael Rooker is a great actor and just really was the only redeeming quality about this character. This season, they found they were able to tone down the character in a very in a way that didn't ignore what had happened before, but make him a lot more palatable and maybe more interesting, if not uh, likable. And I think. Uh, his interactions with his brother and his loyalties being torn between his brother and his new friend, his brother's new friends and this uh, town that he had been holed up in ever since we last saw him in season one, where a um, a character called the governor has created sort of a safe place for survivors, but has done so through some very questionable means. And Merle has kind of become his right hand man. So there was some very interesting tension with Merle this season. And you kind of, finally got to dig under his surface a little bit and see maybe another side to Merle. And you got an opportunity to maybe see Merle try and redeem himself. If maybe he wasn't completely successful and maybe if it wasn't for the right reasons, but he maybe did some things that really kind of made you see the character in a different light. Um, so yeah, I, I think the show is definitely, I, I understand why, you both lost interest in the show. 
And you did so for the same reasons that I didn't really enjoy it that much. But I will say that season three is a very different show from the first two seasons. It didn't fix all the problems. It still has that kind of I can know exactly when the the zombies are going to show up kind of feeling to it. But at the same time, it did a few more interesting things. Uh, It's still very sort of like a very easy to follow path for the narrative. You, you kind of know exactly where the narrative's going and it's kind of has to go in this direction, which is not the most interesting um, direction for a show that we, and especially a show that's on AMC and network. I think we all expect a little bit more from or used to anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, but it's, it, it's definitely was a more interesting show. It definitely got more um, people's, it, it was it was much more about a conflict between characters than it was people against the zombies. It was much like the season was all about a face off between two different groups of survivors. But also, in addition to these two main groups, you started to see other survivors who were kind of on the fringe and the periphery who maybe had different um, ideas of what was happening and was reacting to this new world in different ways. And maybe were not um, handling it in ways that were able to explore through the two main groups that we've been following thus far. So I think it's offering a more well-rounded picture of what this world looks like now this season, which I thought was very interesting. All right. Um, I, 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 I'm sort of slightly more persuaded that the show might be worthwhile based on this. I will not start watching it again. Um, <laughs> if I hear that the new showrunner in season four continues to do good things, maybe I'd catch up on three and four, uh, or well, I guess the rest of two that I didn't watch three and four. Um, but probably unless I hear that the show gets amazing at some point, I will not. I will keep you posted. I'm going to keep watching. As I said, uh, season three was enough of an improvement to reinterest me. Um, but the show's going to have to keep improving to keep me on board because like I said, season three wasn't perfect. It was just a definite improvement. Sure. Um, uh, any last thoughts before we move on and talk about another AMC show? (laughs) Uh, no, I think that's about it for me. Walking Dead. All right. So Walking Dead, those of you who watched it probably agree with Chris, or maybe you also hated it. Uh, those of you who didn't, maybe you want to watch it. Um, either way, you can let us know, as always, what you're thinking. Uh, why don't we move on and talk about the other AMC show that, uh, well, Walking Dead just ended and Mad Men just began. So, Sam, why don't we start with you? Uh, what did you think of the Mad Men premiere? Uh, I thought it was a really good premiere. I mean, I'm not... I'm not particularly surprised it was so good. Um, it did, since we have so much stuff to catch up on, it didn't focus. It, we didn't get to all of the characters, particularly Joan. This was sadly a Joanless episode. Um, and picking up with Don in, uh, in, I guess it was Hawaii. Uh, basically, it's just setting up for this season. I felt like it's, it's the continued march for Don to irrelevancy. Um, basically like all the characters have seemed to change so much except for Roger, I guess all of the non old suit types have, have kind of been starting to change the creative types. They all have like long hair and beards now. And we're kind of, I guess it's supposed to be 1967 now. Was uh, it, was I it believe it never was explicit, but I believe it was Christmas 67. Yeah. Okay. So we're kind of, nearing that big mark of like 69 which i assume is when i guess i have no idea when the show is going to end but if they only have a season left i'd imagine 
it's probably going to close out in the 60s. Well, we've got big um, things coming if, if this was, in fact, 67, because we're going to have the death of Martin Luther King and the death of RFK in uh, April of 68. Yeah, and I'm sure right. the, the show will do... It'll be interesting to see how the show handles those things. It was interesting how what they did with uh, JFK kind of plotting the 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 whole wedding storyline around the fact that the audience knew that that event was going to happen. Um, yeah, I was I was actually I was a little surprised at how much we dealt with Betty uh, this episode. She's kind of taken a backseat, I think. Uh, I guess the last season when we were introduced to Fat Betty yeah. in her her fat suit, which is still kind of awkward looking, and it, it it doesn't look good. It's kind of distracting. But um, I thought it was interesting. It wasn't really a Sally storyline. It was more of a Betty storyline, and how she's kind of obsessed with this friend of Sally who is dissatisfied with her life and she has dreams of just leaving everything behind and kind of becoming a bohemian. And I think, I think I thought it was, I thought it was they're doing an interesting thing with Betty being kind of like fascinated by this and maybe a little bit scared by it just because it's something she can't do. Or maybe she's something she's thought of like leaving her life behind and seeing what, what else is out there. Um, so I thought it was interesting that they went specifically with Betty for the first episode. Um, there's also a lot to talk about with Roger, but I guess I'm, I can leave you to talk about Roger and his psychotherapy lessons and his dead mother. Yeah, we can we can bounce that back and forth. Um, I should point out at this point uh, in the name of self-promotion that I am reviewing the show. So um, if you want to read more of what I thought about it, uh, my review is up at reviewingname.com as per usual. Uh, I thought this was a fantastic premiere. Uh, like you said, Sam, sort of unsurprisingly. <laughs> It's, you know, when Mad Men comes back, it's like, it's just so, it's a show that's very aware of its own greatness, but that the greatness is not diminished by that fact. And I feel like from its opening moments, it was, it was like, hey, you're watching Mad Men. Remember how great this show is? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do, Mad Men, Um, (laughs) which, which I enjoyed. Uh, I thought like. The, the one thing that I thought was uh, uh, sort of off, I liked I liked a lot of the artfulness at the, at the beginning with the uh, the Dante quote and the sort of uh, etherealness of the vacation Hawaii and the way that uh, it was framed by the doorman's near death experience. Um, though I thought the cut from like the doorman uh, like you know being dead to him just standing there again was so jarring that it like took me out of the episode for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I. I had to I had to um, cycle back on my DVR for a second just to, to see what had happened because it was it, it really like threw me when that happened. Yeah, I everyone that, everyone in the room that I was jump. watching it with was like, wait, wait, what just happened? I'm confused. Yeah, um, that threw me off. So I'll, I'll, I will say that. Uh, but I think a lot of what you said about Betty Sam is dead on. Um, I I was glad to see the show bring her back, uh, and I never expected that to happen. Like for the last two seasons, it's been like. Oh, do we have to see Betty again? Nothing's really going on there. Um, and I thought this was a, this was a great Betty episode. Uh, used her very well. It uh, broke my heart with that violin. It was a it was a good story about, to my mind, the the way that Betty has sort of closed off a lot of options in her life, uh, and the way that she perhaps regrets that. Which is basically what every Madman is about in some way, <laughs> um, and what Roger's story is about. Uh, his beautiful speech on, uh, you know, how life is a series of doorways, but the the more of them you go through, the more you realize that everything on the other side is basically exactly the same. Uh, I thought that was a great speech, and 
really most of uh, Roger's stuff was some of John Slattery's best work in the series, and he's always great. So uh, that's saying something. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think I didn't think it was like particularly subtle, like that this episode is just like has was like dealing with death from top to bottom, and then the ad that they create where everyone thinks it looks like it's a guy committing suicide. And it's like being on vacation is like this sort of re- this sort of release from the burden of life. Um, yeah, I loved the. Uh, did did it make you think of suicide? Of course, that's what I liked about it because that's that was yeah. such a perfect line. That's sort yeah. of exactly what I thought is like, yeah, like obviously this is suicide, but that's what makes it an interesting ad. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps not to hawk the Sheraton in Hawaii though. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So I, I guess. To begin with, what I would say is I I loved the episode. Um, I, I thought the Roger stuff was really good. Uh, Dawn is as always an, in an interesting place um, in the arms of Linda Cardellini, who was always nice to see. Yeah, that was kind of surprising, and that she has like a kid in, in college, which doesn't really. I mean, I guess in theory she could have like had the kid when she was like eighteen or something or twenty. Uh, she still seems kind of young though. To have, like, yeah. a college-age kid, which she is does. weird. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, Peggy, who is still very much a part of the show, despite leaving uh, Sterling Cooper, Draper, Price. I, I think um, what this episode did very well with Peggy was sort of show the ways in which she has become Dawn. Um, and really not even the ways in which... I, I, I wouldn't even say the ways in which she has and the ways in which she hasn't. Like, most of it is she's become Dawn for better and for worse. Um, Dawn was never like a particularly great manager with her. She is not a particularly great manager. Uh, she manages through cruelty and fear, just like Dawn did. Um, and like, she is successful because she's so goddamn good at her job. Like she's able to salvage, uh, the crisis of the lend me your ears scenario and come up with something really brilliant. And so like Ted is impressed by her and says, you're good at your job, but also she's like a terrible supervisor. (laughs) yeah i i think um i I think they did a i i also thought it was a nice touch that she still keeps in contact with uh is is stan's the character's name the 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 new creative staff i always have trouble keeping track of who's who um um but wait what i call i call him beard now he's the big beard yeah i always forget his name actually yeah i I remember i think the character's name is stan but I'm not sure that that's his name. But um, let's call him Beardy Larue. Beardy Larue. So I I thought that was a nice touch, like showing that she still keeps in contact with Beardy Larue, and they still kind of like exchange office gossip, which I thought was a very fun, simple way of still keeping her in the loop of what's going on with the rest of the narrative and not feeling so completely apart from everything else. But I think um, seeing Betty deal with a crisis, seeing how she's like Don and having her talk to someone at the office is only going to go so far. I mean, I trust this creative team a lot, so I'm sure they have a plan for how they're going to continue to bring Betty back into the loop of things. But I mean, as has been the um, pattern before in the show, when somebody kind of outlived their usefulness, they kind of went off into limbo for a while and then maybe came back whenever there was a reason to more naturally integrate them back into the show. The one exception being Betty, um, who I guess the only connection there still is Sally, because Sally still has the strong relationship with Don and 
is kind of being tugged back and forth between her two parents and the sort of the segue to get to the Betty stories. But I don't think that Peggy has that natural of a segue at the moment. So I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with her going forward, because I think it's going to be tough to keep including her in organic ways. Uh, I don't think that the show is going to have that problem. Um, I think, I think it had a bigger problem with Betty, mostly because Betty didn't ever really have much to do except react to Dawn. And that was like sort of the, the nature of her character is that she was sort of this empty housewife who who'd been brought up to be like a pr- the proper woman and never really developed any sense of self um and that was interesting in the first few seasons because you had dawn being dawn and betty sort of not really knowing knowing how to deal with dawn as the man he was because he was not the ideal husband um and then when you get rid of dawn and you bring in henry francis who the show hasn't really done a, any work on shading at all um there's not a whole lot for betty to do so i think betty's had problems on that front uh, but Peggy is, is, you know, she's the other lead of the show to my mind, where, wherever she is, is where the show, you know, the show can just follow her, whatever she's doing becomes an interesting and integral part of the show by the fact that Peggy is doing it. Um, and I think she's working in advertising. So to the extent the show is still about advertising, which I think it is, um, she's doing the same thing they're doing. Uh, and I think there are plenty of ways that they can tell the same stories over at the new firm or that they, they can have the two firms, you know, come into conflict or collide in other ways. Well, my worry there is just this is a show that already has a huge cast. And if they're going to add a whole nother firm on to us for to try and keep track of, I think they're going to definitely have a trouble sharing screen time between characters. But at the same time, you probably could just focus things on uh, Peggy and um, just kind of have a few other characters kind of in her orbit. But still, I mean, even this episode, like we, we said that it was a Joan light episode, but there were a lot of characters who really didn't really get any sort of do this past episode. The show's always sort of that way. I think though, I mean, you have episodes that are very character heavy and uh, some characters get thrown out of the way. Like Joan, Joan will be in the background of five or six episodes. And then you get an episode like the other woman where Joan is the center of the show. And that's really her showcase for the season. And I think Peggy will probably be uh, backgrounded for a lot of the season because she's not at the firm. But I think when they want to do Peggy stories, they'll do Peggy stories. And um, this show, perhaps more than any other show on television, is really good at telling insular stories where I think you could do a Peggy story with just Peggy. I don't think we need uh, a bunch of character development with the other people at uh, her new firm because I think – you have Peggy, and the show's good enough at depicting what's going on in Peggy's head that you probably don't need much else to tell an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, the, the show's always kind of operated that way. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get our Pete episode, and we're going to get, um, you know, our Joan episode. Um, in regards to Peggy, I feel like at some point she's going to She's going to come back into the fold with Don, either as an employee uh, with Sterling Cooper, Draper Price, or or just as a confidant. I mean, I, I don't I don't think the show is going to just keep it at her and uh, Beardy LaRue because she has to come back, right? I imagine that 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 this season will feature a Don and Peggy episode, sort of a. It can't be the equivalent to, and I'm sure it won't be as good as, The Suitcase, just because, good God, that's an amazing hour of television. But I I think that we're probably going to have an episode at some point that's about the Don and Peggy relationship, because it's the most important relationship on the show. Um, uh, It's it's possible 
that Matt Weiner is going to make us wait until the last season for that. Like, it's possible uh-huh. that this could be a season in which Peggy and Dawn are not speaking to each other or not really in each other's lives. Um, I could see that working narratively, uh, but I would I would not be surprised if Dawn and Peggy were back in each other's lives before long. Well, if the uh, next up on Mad Men preview is any indication, there are <laughs> going to be human beings in the next episode saying words. My favorite, my favorite, I, I enjoy the next on Mad Men uh, scenes almost as much as I enjoy the show because it is always as absurd as I remember. Like, I always think, no, you're exaggerating. And then it's like, what? Yes, I don't like that. Door close. Yeah. <laughs> Guy changing channels. Right. Like, it shows the characters in the show. So, like, you know that the characters in the show you're watching will be in the next episode. Yeah. And that they will still speak English. And that's about all it gives you. They've got to be in on the joke, right? Whoever's cutting these trailers. Like, they, they, they have to know this because... Well, I feel like it's almost at the point of self-parody. Yeah. Well, Matt Weiner is, like, is like desperately secretive. So I imagine yeah. that, that he does this on purpose to be like, I have to show you something for the next episode. I am not going to show you anything that tells you anything. Well, yeah, but what, I, what I'm saying is, like, do you think it's become, like, an intentional bit of comedy now? Um, I don't know about that. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I could I could see that. Because it's, I mean, it's, it's completely just, it's just absurd. It's so hilarious it, it's it, it, it's surreal yeah that's that's absolutely true um i guess i mean do we have more that we want to say about the show before we move on mad men's still a good show yeah it, i mean it is you know the best or second best show on television depending on how good a year breaking bad is having and i imagine this will be a very good year for breaking bad um dare dare i say that we're still mad about Mad Men? oh i wish it hadn't <laughs> well i did it's um sorry listeners you can stop listening to us forever if you want though i hope <laughs> you don't uh chris will be punished in time no i won't <laughs> maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but someday chris you'll regret saying that i'm incorrigible oh you're something all right <laughs> Um, Yes, so Mad Men is back. We love it. I am writing about the show every week uh, over on the website. And if you are watching it and have thoughts, you can always talk to us about it. I'm sure, I think, we'll probably talk about it again um, either when there is an episode of such note that we all decide we have to talk about that this week or uh, when the the season ends. So I imagine that Mad Men will be discussed again in the very near future on the podcast. But for now, it was a very good premiere. I imagine it will be a very good season because this is a very good television show. Uh, and for now, Sam, why don't I kick it over to you and we'll return to the review name movie club. Um, well, this this last week we watched, I guess it wasn't this last week. Um, but uh, we we I guess it was the last month or so. I don't know. How long ago did we assign this movie? Roughly four episodes ago. I try to I try to bring us back to movie club once a month. Um, we've skipped a few weeks because of travel and technological complications. Uh, so it's probably been about six weeks this time, but it was, I think, four episodes ago. Well, however many weeks or years ago we assigned this, we picked Out of Sight, just because I think it was it was a movie that none, obviously none of us had seen. And it was Steven Soderbergh and coming off of his announcement that he's pretty much done making movies. I don't know. Did he say he had one more in there? Or um, No, he, he was side effects was his last. Uh, technically, he like he directed the Liberace movie with Michael Douglas. That's going to be on HBO. Right. So I guess technically that's the last. Um, but this is this is a movie that's held in, I think, pretty high regard. And 
I think AV Club, was it the best movies of what? the 90s or yeah, it was like number what five or six on their best movies of yeah the 90s. i mean it was it was high up it's had incredibly high praise so um well i guess the way we should start this is what do you guys think what did you think of the movie um i Jordan? will yeah i'll i'll jump in why not um i really enjoyed the movie uh it it was basically i would say like it was very solid throughout. Um, I thought George Clooney was really good. Not surprising. I thought Jennifer Lopez was fine, uh, which was surprising. Um, it has an amazing ancillary cast. I mean, you've got uh, Ving Rhames, Don Cheadle, Catherine Keener. Um, uh, who else am I missing? Uh, Michael Keaton is in there briefly. Uh, Albert Brooks is in there in a very interesting role. Um, so it's, I mean, it, it's, it's rounded out by a lot of people I really like. Uh, I thought the structure of it was fun. It, it did that sort of cool uh, playing with time thing that every movie wanted to do for the five or six years after Pulp Fiction came out. Um, and it was uh, it, it had the wit of the Elmore Leonard novels, so I enjoyed that. Uh, basically, it was just a really solid movie on all fronts, I would say, uh, to start off. And we can sort of get into the, the depths of it a little bit more. Uh, as we bat it back and forth. Chris, what did you think? I liked it a lot. Um, more than I, I didn't really know a whole lot about going into it. And I think the thing that struck me first as I was starting to get into the movie and something I didn't expect was that I really liked the chemistry between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. I thought they had a really nice dynamic with each other that I was kind of a little skeptical of going into it. I'm, I'm not the biggest J-Lo fan, but um, her and what? <laughs> I, I, I like their I like their dynamic. I like their interaction. I kind of bought into their chemistry and I kind of really wanted to just fall like watch their relationship develop and kind of watch them chew through scenes together. So I, I like that. But I, I thought it was I thought it was a very enjoyable caper movie. I thought there were some very interesting characters that were just kind of thrown against each other and um, a veritable who's who of people I've seen in things. <laughs> um, you're you're being quite incorrigible tonight. <laughs> I mean, when Steve Zahn shows up, I always kind of have to sit up and take notes and be like, oh, Steve Zahn, <laughs> he did things before this year. I've tracked him down to an earlier origin than I thought he had. That's so, like, um, I am, uh, I think you are as well, Sam. I'm watching Veronica Mars at the moment, and I, I saw an episode uh, a week or so ago with Jessica Chastain in it, and I was like, yeah. wow, so she existed before 2010. <laughs> yeah, she was a real human being, apparently. There are a lot of cameos like that on... Uh, Veronica yeah, Mars. Yeah, Veronica Mars is, is a show full of me going like, holy crap, this person's in an episode of Veronica Mars. Yeah. Um, but that's not what we're talking about right now. <laughs> so Chris, huh, That's another podcast, I'm sure. Chris, I, 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 I will oh. say that I felt the movie was a little slow at times. Like, there are definite points where I thought kind of the pacing was a little bit off from here and there, or that certain scenes were just kind of elongated beyond natural stopping points. But I did like a lot of the, the flashback scenes. I thought the the reveal of like how the caper was kind of coming together and the origins of it and why this character was in this place that we found him when he first appeared in the movie was well executed. Um, it's, and, it's and more specifically, I really liked Don Cheadle. I, I, I thought I, I always liked Don Cheadle and I liked him in this a lot. Yeah, he was, he was quite good. It's interesting to me uh, that you would say uh, that you thought the pacing was off and some of the scenes went on too long because I, the question I was going to ask you uh, before I realized you were not done talking yet and I try not to interrupt you horribly uh, um, 
is as a as the person on the podcast who watches Justified, what did you think of it as an Elmore Leonard uh, story? Which it is. I mean, Out of Sight is an Elmore Leonard novel, um, and I think I think actually, you know, the pacing of it and the way that scenes seem to go on slightly longer or have like that slightly off skew to them is very Leonard. So as a f- I know you love Justified, so it surprises me that you had those problems with the movie. Uh, I, I do love Justified. I guess maybe my problem with the out-of-sight pacing was not so much... I, I Maybe I noticed it more just because I felt like there were certain scenes that were a bit more repetitive in the movie. Like It seemed like the first hour was just laden with these scenes of um george clooney like longingly looking at a photograph of j-lo or seeing her from like across a room or something it was just like this this beat that just kept like being hammered over and over and over again well i Um, feel like the the beginning of the movie was i think more concerned with character than plot i mean i feel like the last probably the last third of the movie was was just plot and the ice and i don't i i agree i don't think the beginning of the movie was particularly concerned with those sorts of things and with that sort of hang up, it can make things feel kind of slow just because there are a lot of characters in this movie and a lot of characters needed to be introduced. We needed to know who Albert Brooks was. We needed to know who Don Cheadle was. Yeah. And of course, we needed J-Lo and uh, George to kind of have their, their I was going to say, weird chemistry, but chemistry nonetheless. They did have a, like a surprising amount of chemistry considering the fact that usually Jennifer Lopez is basically like a block of wood that is in a scene. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever seen her have actual chemistry with another human being before out of sight. That's just the power of Clooney. Did yeah. you not see Selena? Um I have not seen Selena. Does she have a lot of chemistry in Selena? Yes, and a lot of passion and fire. <laughs> then she gets Selena is Sam's favorite movie. I remember seeing Selena and not knowing like the story of Selena. So at the end, when she gets shot, I was like really shocked <laughs> and and upset. That would be like seeing Titanic and not knowing the story of Titanic and being like, holy crap, this boat is sinking? I it's going to be in love. <laughs> this well, movie has say, taken a sudden and dramatic turn. I like, the, I like that Selena. It's the equivalent of the Titanic in terms of tragedy, right? Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same. Much um, like uh, if you see Life is Beautiful and you're like, this is a charming romantic comedy. Oh, my God, the Holocaust. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this movie was really hinged on the the chemistry between uh, Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney, because it's really just about like, this is just a career criminal. And if he isn't George Clooney, this chick has like no interest in him because they kidnap her. And it's like George Clooney, he's so good looking and so charming that he's able to like turn a love story into this thing. I think um, this is like this is the movie star turn for George Clooney. Like if you look at the the period this film comes out at, uh, this is sort of the the time when George Clooney stops being a TV star and starts being a movie star. And I think a lot of that is because Out of Sight turns on him being a movie star. Like if he if he is not as charming and good looking as he is, and if he does not have the movie star uh, capabilities that he does, the movie just would not work. Yeah, well, I mean, this movie it it played to all of his strengths, and it was. I kind of was watching it and thinking like, this is kind of the first natural step before doing Ocean's Eleven because Ocean's Eleven is kind of a, a less complicated uh, kind of version of this in a way. Just, yeah, I mean, I, have, I can see how sorry. Clooney and, and Soderbergh, after uh, having made this movie, wanted to make Ocean's Eleven. Well, basically, it's you have the all-star cast and you have the heist, and 
basically you have, you have so it's many both, characters. It you have a ton of characters, and you're and the appeal of the Oceans movie is you're like seeing these movie stars interact with each other and be their charming selves, which is really I mean that's that's the hook of Oceans Eleven is that you get to see George Clooney, you know, be his charming self and be like a, like a, a another again a career criminal uh, a career robber who is just, just charming enough to be charming just be super <laughs> suave and super charming and he still gets the girl even though it is julia roberts um well you know, I, he, I think and i think if you're if you're comfortable with my reading of out of sight as like the movie that made Clooney uh, into a movie star then i think that in, from that perspective the way that the oceans movies deal with celebrity and they do uh is a logical extension of that I mean, Absolutely. like uh, especially Ocean's Twelve, but I think really all of the Ocean's movies are are sort of about like the power of celebrity. Well, you can say like, I guess Jennifer Lopez like falls for George Clooney for all the reasons why audiences like George Clooney. Yeah, he's yeah. impossibly good looking and he's impossibly charming. Now, in the Ocean's movies, we kind of know this about George Clooney and some of the other actors like Brad Pitt and Matt Damon. And we're kind of like in the Jennifer Lopez spot in that, oh, these guys are all criminals, but we love them because aren't they just like fun guys and they're they're good looking guys, they're celebrities, they're really cool. And yeah, and I think the Oceans movies, like I said, consciously trade on the fact that like we're rooting for these people because they're celebrities and like a lot of their interactions and a lot of the ways they're built as characters and a lot of the ways even the engine of the plots of these movies are, are developed are based more on notions of celebrities than, than on notions of actual crime. <laughs> Um, yeah. but I mean, seems like we're almost veering into talking about the oceans movies more than out of sight itself. So I'll redirect us to the movie at hand and say, um, how do you think the film stacks up with its reputation? Cause I think that's, uh, one of the reasons that we picked it is because it is a phenomenally well-regarded movie. You know, like we said, it was AV clubs, uh, what fifth or sixth favorite movie of the nineties. Um, they are a film site that we tend to, you know, quite appreciate the opinions of um so when they say something is as good as that it's it becomes sort of canon um until we can you know experience it ourselves so what do you think do you think it uh it stacks up uh why don't we start with you chris uh i'd like to see what else it was up against but for me uh no i mean i i liked it quite a lot but i didn't really see anything um very stand out about it i think it was just a very solidly enjoyable film uh characters that i enjoyed following and spending time with but there was nothing i i don't know that this movie's gonna stick with me after like i think i'll remember the gist of it but i don't think a lot of the details are really gonna like really stand out in my mind like they would with some movies that i would consider to be my favorite movies of all time or like some of the most prolific movies of a certain decade or um be able to trace back a certain like uh pivotal moment in films for whatever decade and what they would say about that period in time all i really i think will remember about this movie was it was a very solid caper film with some great chemistry between their characters and some great performances by people who went on to then do a lot more things i i i think it was good i don't know that we call it top 10 movies of the 90s uh sam what do you think um well just to refresh my memory i pulled up the top 10 or I guess AV Club did top 50 films of the yeah, 90s. Yeah, it was, it was and, a top 50 list. Okay. And Out of Sight came in at number six and was behind uh, Chungking Express, Days and Confused, Toy Story 2, Pulp Fiction, and Goodfellas at number one. And to me, it kind of feels like 
that's that's a bit high, I think, especially since it came out on top over you know over movies like Friends of Our Dogs. Um, I think I think just knowing this, that being just being on this list, it probably hurt its chances for me. Sort of like when we watched Tokyo Story uh, earlier in Movie Club. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's better that I don't see like movies or know where they rank on lists because it's gonna it's gonna skew everything. Yeah, perhaps how I perhaps, view it. perhaps picking well, our movies based on like the fact that they're ranked really high on lists uh, plays with our expectations in ways that are uh, not ideal. Let me play yeah, devil's just, advocate with you sure. then because I actually went into this like I I guess I had missed the email when this was announced and um it was I, on the show you just weren't listening. Okay, probably. That is true. I you haven't, you haven't tattooed on your chest, memento style. <laughs> I usually kind of skip the last 15, 20 minutes of the show, just being perfectly just honest. Just quietly masturbating yep. while we're all trying to like host a podcast. Yeah, or you know, sometimes they make a sandwich. You know, either <laughs> masturbation or sandwich, one or the other. It's, I mean, um, both of them serve basically the same function, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but oh, now I completely lost my train of thought. So I, I actually didn't know of this. Uh, movies placed on the list, or even that it was a Soderbergh film until um, right before I started watching it, and I looked up um, the IMDb page for it. Uh, and, and still, I kind of found myself just very enjoyable, but maybe not... It didn't really blow me away in anything or leave me with coming out of it with any sort of um, definite rationale for this is a great movie, and here is why. This is a standout movie because it did this thing that I think makes it memorable for the decade it came out. And I didn't have that reaction to it. I just thought it was a very enjoyable off on, but not much more than that. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I think my views on the movie are actually going to evolve over time because they have evolved since I watched it, uh, okay. which was just yesterday. Um, my first, my initial thought was immediately like, wow. Okay. Like that was good, but really like, best best movies of the 90s good yeah um but the more i thought about it, the more like a i don't think there's really anything wrong with it which is not really like high criticism yeah in terms of, like, it's the highest praise i think and well i but i mean it more earnestly than it sounds initially um like if you think about it like this this movie has a very solid script it's very solidly directed it's very solidly acted um you know basically every every piece of it works really well um I don't think any of them are the greatest I've ever seen of it, but all of it works really well, and all of it is very cohesive. And it also, I think, does a really good job. Like, it represents a lot of things that '90s movies are to me. Um, you know, it's like the the way that it looks. It's very much it's very much in the style of the '90s movies. The way that it plays with time is very much in those early post Pulp Fiction years, and the way that Hollywood loved to ape that structure. Yeah. Um, it fe- so it feels very much like a quintessential '90s movie done very very well. Um, so while I while I tend to agree with both of you that like I think it's coming a little high, I I'm a little, a little mystified at its reception still. I think my views on that might change the more I sit with the movie and as I see it again, which I will definitely watch this movie again. I really enjoyed it. Um, so maybe maybe if you ask me in a year or two, I will say Out of Sight is one of the best movies of the '90s. For now, I would say. It's a really, really good movie. Um, I like it more today than I liked it yesterday, uh, and that's usually a good sign if I'm still thinking about a movie and enjoying it more uh, as long a- uh, after I've watched it as you know, 24 hours. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna get asked Jordan about Out of Sight 
in two years tattooed on my chest tomorrow just so this can continue. That's a good idea. Um, yeah. That's the only way you, I remember. You can tattoo it over the fact that Out of Sight is in the top 10 of the nine, uh, list of the 90s because you won't need to know that anymore. <laughs> if either of you guys wants to give me sticky notes next Christmas, that'd be great. <laughs> we'll really cut down on your tattoo costs. Yeah. Um. So I, 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 is there anything else we want to say about Out of Sight before we uh, announce the next review-be-named uh, movie club pick? It was good. <laughs> yeah, it was good. All right. We good liked stuff. Out of Sight. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, it's good, and maybe it's great. <laughs> um, so, Chris, I'm going to turn to you now because it is your turn to pick the next movie for Movie Club. Uh, the system is sort of thrown off by the fact that we have different people on the podcast all the time. Um, so technically I think it's really not your turn. And in fact, you picked two times ago, as I recall, but yeah. whatever, I'm, uh, letting you pick again. So what's the next yeah. movie going to be, Chris? By the way, thank you for letting me pick again after the first one I picked <laughs> again. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, you should be, <laughs> um, <laughs> listeners of the podcast who were not, uh, privy to that show chris made us uh watch the killer inside me which is a terrible terrible movie oh my God, um, so and don't, like don't seek it out because oh it's gonna be bad and it'll be fun it's not it's just no it's not bad. fun at all it's fun it's just awful and it uh is like deeply problematic in its treatment of women yeah. <laughs> but you... let's not retread that instead let's give you a chance to fix your reputation for picking movies chris Okay, so for my pick this week, sticking with things that are easily available on streaming, but since I think Out of Sight was on streaming and then was kicked off, uh, watch it. Watch it while it's there. I'm going to pick Lena Dunham's Tiny Furniture, which was her debut feature from 2010, uh, directed by Lena Dunham and also starring her, and I think also starring a couple other people who went to Beyond Girls, but I'm not positive about that. Um, I don't know if anyone from Girls is in it. I think other than her, is Sam. I said other than Lita Dunham. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a good pick. It's something I've been meaning to sit down with because I quite enjoy girls. And I think it'll be interesting for us to, as as people who like girls, to watch Tiny Furniture and see, you know, Dunham's style and how much of it was there already. Sure. Uh, so good call. If we hate this movie, we're going to ban you forever. Uh, Yay. That's not true. If we hate this movie, we're just going to mock you mercilessly every time we make you pick a movie from here into perpetuity. Sam, it'll be fun for the listeners. So maybe it's good if it's bad. <laughs> no pressure. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that, uh, so usually, like I said, it's roughly four episodes of the show. So roughly four weeks for you guys out there in the real world, not stuck in uh, the chamber that I lock everyone in the podcast in. Um. Roughly a month from now, we're going to be sitting down and talking about Tiny Furniture on the movie club. So go out, watch the movie, talk about it with us um, via social media and on our website, or you know, just listen to the podcast, listen to us talk about it, and know what we're talking about because you've seen the movie. Whatever floats your boat. Um, for now, uh, it, I think it's time to announce the uh, Rachel Tartt Memorial Award winner for Best Performance in the Week. Uh, this is again an easy pick. Um, we've been, I think, I've been softballing this for basically the entire existence of the award, but I'm gonna keep softballing it. And the week goes to Roger Ebert, who, while he left us, left us with so much. So, Roger, we will forward the trophy and small cash prize on to your loving wife, and we miss you. Um, with that, as always, you can. Go to the website, reviewname.com, um, read what we're writing, talk to us there. You can follow us at on Twitter at ReviewBeNamed. You can send us an email at ReviewBeNamed at gmail.com. 
you can yell really loudly and hope we'll hear, but I don't think that's going to work. So I would not suggest that one. With that, um, we'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.